You are listening to the Tour des Flaneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 7, today we are in la super planche des belles filles. Where are we, Francois? We're in Montbéliard, we're exactly Place d'Enfer Rochereau. You got, you got a square d'Enfer Rochereau in lots of towns in France. Don't ask me what d'Enfer Rochereau was, I'm not sure. So I'd, I'd, I'd rather not say something stupid. Anyway, yeah, we're, uh, we're in front of beers. I mean, you, you've, you've taken Pelican, and I've, I've taken a bière de Sochaux, because Sochaux is next door to Montbéliard. Sochaux Montbéliard, for real French football fans, they heard of the name, because Sochaux... Montbéliard was a, was a team that was in the first division for many many years, and it was actually uh, it belonged to a, va- a very famous car maker and not only car maker, he bike maker and uh, jersey maker <laughs> named mm. Peugeot, uh, which is <laughs> in a way uh, a reminder. Well, everybody remembers the Peugeot jersey, iconic checkered chessboard. And uh, what can I say? I mean, we're uh, you. You can't. Uh, this, when we're in Montbéliard, you can't vote for another jersey in our map con- contest than the chess one. That, that's all I can oh. say. Uh, Montbéliard is also famous for sausage. You know, it's the big fat sausage, the ones you find in sauerkraut. Uh, this, this is kind of sausage we're going to have later in the local restaurant, and we'll let you know. Like a bratwurst, is it? Yeah, it's a, it's it's pretty big. You know, it's it's like it's like a, it's not a lean sausage like chipolata. Or it's it's a big it's a big mm. guy. You know, the the saucisse de Montbéliard and uh, and, and uh, yeah, p- pretty greasy. And, but it's mm. good grease. You know, well, good grease. Nothing <laughs> like good <laughs> grease. Well, yeah, Peugeot was founded here, wasn't it? Montbéliard certainly based here for many years, and of course had a long, long history with cycling and the Tour de France. Uh, the Peugeot bikes would have been ridden way back in the beginning, 1903-1904. And of course, Francois, you mentioned the checkerboard jersey. Um, no, no need to say any more about that at the moment. There's also a dotted map jersey and a fade map jersey. And you can vote at map.cc for your favourite. And it will go into production at the end of the year. What about stage seven then? We went to Super Planche de Belfie, the Planche de Belfie first introduced to the Tour de France 10 years ago when Chris Froome won and Bradley Wiggins took the yellow jersey for Team Sky for the first time. I remember that day very well. They've added on the super section in the last couple of editions. 2019 was the first time, the gravel section, and we had the gravel section again today. And we had drama and heartbreak, really. Heartbreak on the line for Leonard Kemner of Bora Hansgrohe because he was caught and passed within touching distance, really, of the line by Jonas Vingegaard and then there was disappointment for Vingegaard because he might have thought that he had the stage win for himself when he passed Kemner but that man Tadej Pogacar in the yellow jersey I mean he no gifts whatsoever from Pogacar he is a modern day cannibal and he's won his second stage in a row his eighth in the history of his uh, association with the Tour de France he won three stages in 2023 last year and the overall on both occasions. He's already won two stages. He's in the yellow jersey. Um, who would bet against him winning a third at some point? Who was third over the line? Primoz Roglic, who's obviously recovered from his difficulties, the fall on the cobbles and then the, the fall the following day. 
Kemner, who was passed, what, 75 metres from the line, lost 14 seconds in those 75 metres, and then came the rest. Geraint Thomas, David Godou, Enric Mass, Roman Bardet, and Adam Yates were the only riders within 30 seconds of Pogacar. Uh, there was a funny moment, wasn't there, when UAE Team Emirates were leading into the gravel section. I don't know what you thought, Mitch, as a lead-out man, but Micah, Rafael Micah's flamboyant, waving, almost frustrated, come on, Pog, it's your turn now. Mm. Uh, what did you make of that? I think he'd had enough. <laughs> I think that's what he was saying. I'm done. I'm out of here. And he was going deep. I, I sort of could see, I think I could see the visual markers that UAE had put out there. You know, George Bennett was trying to get them to about 2K to go. And what I sort of thought, Rafa Michael was trying to get him onto that gravel. And the way he was riding, how aggressive he went up that steep ramp before the gravel, it looked like he was, that was his finish line, his virtual finish line, the gravel. And of course, when he got to the gravel and no one came around him, he was like, I'm past my finish line. I'm, I'm done. Your turn. Um, as, as a general rule, not, not really a rule, but... When you are working for teammates and you have got that job, I can only really specifically talk about lead-outs. I can't say I've led up someone into a final climb, 1K to go on a climb, but in a lead-out, even though you get to your marker and the sprinter hasn't come around, you've got to just keep going. You've got to wait for them to move because what you're trying to do is if you can gain an extra 20, 30, 50 metres on the front, that's going to allow your sprint to get that much closer and they're waiting for the rush. So, And look, I overheard at the end of the stage that he was actually apologising for that move. He said he made a mistake. He thought it was closer to the line and that's why I was waving him through um, or whatever. But I think he was just sort of thinking, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that big action. But he was on the limit. He was setting him up. But what I loved about that was <laughs> how hard a guy like Rafa Michael was going and Pagacha in his wheel was just looking still fresh. I was, was going to say cool as a cucumber, but in that yellow skin suit, um, cool as a banana, does that work? <laughs> to be honest, I found the gesture very nice. And I, and I find there, there were actually four gestures that really summed up the, 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 whole, the whole stage. Micah, when he did that, you had the impression that he had led like in a convoy and, and introduced the, uh, the big guys to, to the last bit and said, now, gentlemen, it's, it's mm. you know, go ahead and do your thing. The, the two other uh, uh, gestures I saw were the, 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 sh the shifting faces of Vingegaard and Pogacar when, when one passed the other. That, like Pogacar, like Vingegaard, you know, turned... Uh, his face to the right, and he saw you know the uh, the Pogacar Express coming back, and you could see, you could feel the air of incredulity on in, in, uh, on his on his eyes, and and in a way, and then Pogacar looked not not looked down on him, but but a that, that's 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 that was a little bit that you know he kind of said no, you know you're not going to steal that mm. for, for me, and then it was la a, a last uh, gesture you you might not have seen from uh, where you were, but. When Pogacar w went down the, the the slope, the gravel slope, he, he, you know, he he, uh, he 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 kind of hit the hands of spectators along the way, you know, on on the on the roadside, and so all those gestures for me, uh, some well summed up was what actually was today's stage, you know, no disregard to the breakaway, but you know everything happened in the final K. Final K, final 200 metres, really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, it's interesting that the, the, the look from Vingegaard to Pogacar and Pogacar back to Vingegaard is almost like, no, surely it can't be you, and Pogacar saying, no, it really is me. 
we'll talk about the break in uh, the next part and then in the middle part we'll discuss the risers and fallers in the general classification. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens. Super Sapiens have started a podcast and you can find it in all good podcast apps. You can find out more about Super Sapiens and how the continuous glucose monitoring technology can help fuel your riding and recovery and fueling. Go to supersapiens.com. But here's a little trailer from the first episode of the Super Sapiens podcast. Swimming has been an interesting one for us to see at Super Sapiens uh, in terms of glucose. It's been really different for us to see, which is cool. And there's lots of reasons we could talk about why perhaps to do with energetic costs of you know being inefficient in the water or fast, more fast switch fiber in the upper body than the lower body. All of these things could be playing a part, you know, having to stay warm in the water. But yeah, it's, it's been fascinating for us to see. And, and yeah, I think Eloise's points around how she felt afterwards after swimming and not fueling uh, a good example of, of why it's important. You know, if I had to echo anything, it'd be the, you know, consistency in stacking days and days and then weeks and weeks and months and months uh, in terms of both for fueling, looking at it in a more macro sense, but also just for training. Well, we're going to do the episode slightly back to front. We're going to have the Tour de Buffalo clip here because this is from an episode of Kilometre Zero from 2019, a really lovely piece of work by Richard Moore, who wanted to tell the story of La Planche de Belfie, Christian Prudhomme's climb, really, because it's Prudhomme who discovered it in Tour de France terms and introduced it to the menu, and the, the race has come back here a, several times over the last A quick one years. about this. Uh, we, 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 we've all told the story of La Planche de Belfie, you know, the story that Swedes, rogue soldiers, you know, attacked the, the village and uh, uh, threatened to rape the young ladies from the, the place, who, uh, you know, escaped from the guys, you know, uh, dived in, in, in the local pond and drowned and that's why it was called and, and one of the Swedish soldiers who had fallen in love with one of them on a piece of board wrote you know uh, I love you or something so it was the board of the beautiful girls but it's all bullshit let's say things like they are it's actually La Planche is lots of you know villages around are called La Planche which means the level like you you, you, you grow a level in the, in a mountain and, and it's actually originally La Planche de Belfaille and it's actually B trees so oh. so so that's uh, all the story about the Swedes and the, it's very uh, exciting you know it's it's all fairy tale and and it's, it was advertised you know when the, the, when we had the first to the front stage there you know the legend went on but it's uh, I'm, I'm afraid it's not true so it's not an entry for Francois Thomaso's dark corner of the <laughs> podcast anyway this is Richard Moore speaking to Daniel Freiber about La Planche de Belfie The Tour du Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore. La Plonge des Belles in the opening week of the tour is a bit of a Christian Prudhomme trademark. This will be the fourth visit in eight years. What is it about this climb that gives it its special characteristics? It's very steep. We're seeing a, a new variation on it this year. You're the mountain man. What, what sets it apart from other climbs? 
at first glance it might seem a bit gimmicky it's one of those climbs that almost seems to have been made for TV made for the Tour de France in reality that's not the case I was speaking to Thibaut Pino the other day about it and he says well he obviously lives pretty much at the base of it and he was saying the other day there have always been bike races up there since when he was a kid but it was gimmicky in the sense that in order for the Tour to, to go up there the, the, the road had to be well, it had to be moved in effect. Um, they had to cut down some trees. There was a lot of opposition from environmentalists um, before that first visit in 2012. There was a group formed called Les Indignés de la Planche, the indignant people of the Planche. Um, they were very indignant um, about what was being done. And again, when it was announced this year that the, the extra bit at the top had been was going to be tarmacked, the environmentalists reappeared they um, there, were, there were protests again or the threat of protest there were all sorts of things they were going to do on the day of the race um, which i don't think are going to materialize and in fact they've been sort of becalmed to a large extent i expect the stage to pass off without any great incident on on that front anyway seems to be a lot of uncertainty about the extension and to what extent the road will be surfaced whether it'll be hard packed whether it's been treated the teams, many of them don't seem to have, have wrecked it, they've got video footage, but there seems to be a lot of uncertainty around exactly what that extension is going to look like. We know it's very steep. Yeah, um, this this is a bit of a, a regular feature of Grand Tours um, at the moment, or it has been in recent years of, you know, these sort of tippy-tappy bits of, of semi-gravel being added. And we've seen them in the Welter as well, and often, you know, it, it's tightly packed gravel which doesn't, it doesn't make too much difference to the outcome of the actual race and the way people ride it. So I don't think that that will be too much of a factor. Um, the, the existing finish was incredibly steep anyway, wasn't it? I think that was around 20% already, and this is even slightly steeper, I think. But, you know, the Planche de Belfi has a, a good record of predicting the winner of the Tour. Um, I would be quite surprised if that was the case tomorrow. Somehow it's quite early in the race. There's uh, two and a half weeks to go after tomorrow. So um, it'll tell us something, won't it? Each time, the wearer of the yellow jersey at La Planche de Belfi has gone on to win the Tour de France. Bradley Wiggins in 2012, Vincenzo Nibli in 2014 when he also won, uh, Chris Froome in 2017 and 2019, who knows? Well, it was one of those days when it took the break a long time to go clear. Simon Geschke, who I suppose started the final move, had already been on the attack earlier, as had several riders. I think Casper uh, Askreen, Imanol Aviti were also active early on, and the, uh, Mads Pedersen as well. Mm. But the, the seven-man break that kind of settled was the two riders from Bora Hansgrohe, Elena Kempner and Max Schachmann, Erviti of Movistar, Geschke of Kofidis, Dylan Turns, who won here, of course, uh, three years ago for Bahrain Victorious, Cyril Bath, and your mate, your very good friend, Mitch, Luke Durbridge. Turbo for Durbo. Bike, for Bike yeah. Exchange. A tough day for a ruler, classics rider, to be on the escape. I mean, obviously, the majority of the stage was flat and rolling, flat relatively speaking and the climb came at the end um, but what did you make of the composition of the break I mean it had a good chance of getting a long way up the climb because of the engines that were in it and so it proved and when they came past us with what seven eight kilometers to go they were absolutely flying must have been 55 60k an hour easily uphill uphill the thing I make of that is the flat start and the big guys, why the big guys were there is because, the, you know, I know this firsthand that um, Bike Exchange wanted Nick Schultz there, suited him in the finish. 
But of course, in such a start, it's a lot of jumping on flat roads. There was no real big launch pads for these guys, the climbers, to launch themselves away. So that's why I think we saw a lot of, like you said, Rollers there, or bigger guys, strong guys. You know, I even saw one clip as we were driving along, Mads Pedersen trying to get his teammate Ciccone in the break. He may have just ended up there. I didn't see how it ended up forming. He may have just ended up there by trying to do a move, cover a move, and actually ended there. That's the way Luke Durbridge also ended ended up there. But what are you going to do when they're there? Are you going to pull them back? No. It's you know it's the Tour de France. You never know what's going to happen in such a group like that. I know it was an uphill finish, you know, for the likes of Durbo and um, Mads and Aviti, a pretty tough ask. But like I said. What, are you going to just drop back because there's an uphill finish at the end? No way. You're going to go for it. You were also saying in the car that just having a rider in the brake is good for team morale. I guess in a way it gives everybody else a day where they know they haven't really got any responsibility to take stuff on. They're not sitting there feeling, oh, we're not really participating. They've got their man up there. Everybody else can, you know, again, relatively speaking, have a, a, a relaxing, relatively stress-free day. And, and not underestimating how hard it actually is to get in the break. You know, this is one of the races um, that people actually celebrate getting in the breakaway. You know, apart from the days that it rolls off, it is... Hey, we're in the centre of town here, as you can probably hear. It was probably a Peugeot. <laughs> it's, it's actually a success to make the break. And then after speaking with the, the other riders, every, I had a joke with Luca Mesjek at the end of the stage. He rolled to the bus and said... Easy day, Luca, you know, pretty slow start. Again, a plus 50k an hour for the first you know, hour at least, was, or maybe yeah, two hours, pl- I didn't plus see. Plus 44, nearly 45 overall. Overall, with yeah. the Including climb at the, the end, with the, with the climb such as that at the end. It's just incredible, really. And they're just, Luca was laughing, he goes, mate, you retired at the right time. <laughs> that's that's a factor that's that I mean we must take into account. I said yesterday that we that we didn't have any big crashes or big pileups or collective you know crashes in the beginning of the tour. But look at the average speeds every day. Next week we go, with all the, the, the those speeds everybody must be really on the limit. Next week you know really scorching heat is announced. Mm. So uh, and you know that Tali Pogacar hates uh, the heat. So I mean, you know, I'm kind of anticipating over on on the, you know, but but I mean, these, these average speeds plus the the the, the, the upcoming heat yeah, could be you know interesting to see. Well, shall we hear from Simon Geschke, Simon Geschke, the German rider with Cofidis, who was instrumental in starting the break and was the first one to hit out on the climb, really, wasn't he? He went away, and it wasn't until sort of five and a half kilometres to go that. Kemner came across to Geschke and attacked him. Geschke, of course, has won a mountain stage in the Tour de France, so has the pedigree to hold on. But this is what Simon Geschke said after the stage. First of all, it was a goal to be in the break, so I was happy to make it because it was a bit of a lot with the flat start. You never know. You have to be a bit lucky also. Fortunately, we, we didn't make it to, to go for the stage win because I thought I can uh, yeah, maybe not win. I knew that Leonard Kemner is a really strong rider for a finish like that, but uh, I was... I was hoping to maybe take a chance for the win or at least uh, top three. So that was my goal. But uh, yeah, UAE was starting to control it very early. They didn't give us enough space. So yeah, I was going. Uh, I was trying to um, take what I can get from the stage. And uh, so yeah, I was I was focusing then in the final more on uh, the combative prize. And uh, yeah, I also won the two. Uh, 
uh, terrible climbs, which is, yeah, you never know. But in the end, uh, I, I was trying to take what I can get. And being on the podium in the tour is, of course, always good. Today, it was quite easy to go for the points because no one else was uh, sprinting for it. So I thought, yeah, because 2020, uh, I was in a couple of breakaways and I got actually quite close to get the mountain jersey, at least for one or two days. <clears throat> so, yeah, you never know when you can use it. And, um, yeah, maybe it can happen one day that you are on the right day in the breakaway and um, you collect some points and then you, you maybe have the, the mountain jersey. So today it was not such a big effort to take points, so I took that. Mitch, you spoke to Luke Durbridge after the finish the bike exchange rider of course very good friend of yours um let's hear what he had to say about getting into the break luke durbridge mate a difficult stage to get up in the break seeing it was an uphill finish a few climbers in there but there was actually a couple of classic style riders in there as well like you tell me about the breakaway mate it was a hard one to judge you know it took 60k for the break to go again um so it was just so fast and um we were just covering not i didn't particularly actually want to be in the breakaway but like you've sort of just we wanted to get Schultz or uh, Schultz or Bling in the break but you gotta go help them out you gotta cover moves uh, I could see it squeezing and closing and there's some good guys up there but it was kind of a big group you know like there were some climbers there's also some big boys too so once I got in there I thought oh, I'm not the best climbers here it's up to them and uh, I think I tactically did it quite well like I saw Bora went with the, the two up attack and I was on the back of that um, and then from there, I sort of covered moves all the way into the bottom of the bottom of the climb. And then I thought, when I get to the bottom, I'll just give myself every opportunity to hold on and you know maybe get a couple of you know maybe get third or something. But just didn't have enough time. So uh, in the end, I got caught inside 4K to go. But I enjoyed my day out. So that was good. Awesome, mate. I'll let you get back in the bus. Yeah, I found it really interesting. And like you said. Durbo is a mate of mine and I know how well he climbs having trained with him I know the numbers he can put out and he yeah he's not considered a climber but by all means I think he can drop everyone listening on this podcast he is a strong (laughs) guy out there and that's what puts everything into perspective because I know he went he Matt Heyman I spoke to Matt Heyman at the end of the race too and he's told Durbo specifically Durbo you're not supposed to be here so you guarantee me you take the easy ride. Do not pull through. Because Durbo is known, he's a strong guy. He likes to, you know, he's an honest guy. Do his turns and maybe more. But he was instructed to take it easy and have a dip on that last climb. And he told me that he did, as you heard. He really got into it and had a go on that climb. And, of course, we see these guys right away. So it just, for me, having trained with a guy for many years, it puts it in perspective how hard these guys were going what sort of numbers i would love to see his power file for that because i'm sure it was just ludicrous kind of numbers well the nearly man leonard kempner came within touching distance of winning the stage huge disappointment for the german rider afterwards i waited for him at the bora hansgrohe bus and this is what he had to say about nearly winning a tour de france stage can you tell me what you were thinking when vingador and then pogacar came past you so close to the line yeah, I was not thinking much. I was completely on the limit. I just wanted to survive to the line and uh, for sure I was shortly disappointed that it didn't work out. But uh, I was also like, okay, I couldn't have gone any faster. So I was not I was not in tears. Did you know they were coming? Yeah, I kind of felt it when the motorbikes overtook me. I knew like, ah, now I probably get caught. But you played it well as a team, two in the break and then you pick your moment 
to go after Gäste. Yeah, um, I think we did not so much wrong. Like we fastened up the group when it was absolutely necessary. Like already 70k to go. Then we kept it rolling. We tried everything to yeah, extend the lead. But in the end, it was just not the day. I was slightly surprised to see two of you in the break when you also have Vlasov well placed overall. What's the story there? Yeah, today is the day where you have like not big obstacles before the climb. So then you can put like one or two guys of your climbers into the break, try to go for stage victory because there's nothing where you can like get in uh, trouble before the climb. And like on the last climb when it's like 9, 10, even more percent, we cannot do so much. Like we hang on, we get dropped and uh, like there's no benefit. So we thought like today it's better we have uh, guys in the break and try to take a win. Kemner has won a tour stage in the past, of course, at Villa de Long a couple of years ago. That was during the lockdown tour, I think, wasn't it? Twenty. Yeah, it was, yes, it was the first lockdown tour, the September one, I think. That's right, yeah, and he was up there with uh, Richard Carapaz and, and so so on, I think, was up in the, yeah, absolutely. In the break and, mm. and he dropped them and went away and, and won. Um, as you heard there, I asked a question about Bora Hansgrohe because they had Kemner and Shackman in the break and yet they also have Alexandra Vlasov as their overall hope and, and Vlasov is, was right in the mix uh, he lost a bit of time today one of the first of the serious GC riders dropped uh, he conceded 1 minute 39 at the line yeah he had, he had a bad crash uh, uh, apparently so uh, this morning he told, he told a few journalists uh, colleagues that uh, it, was, it was really a test for him today to see how well you know he, he reacted from his crash I will see in the future. I mean, you know, it's a long way to Paris. Well, that explains it entirely yeah. then, doesn't it? So mm. they had two riders in the break and uh, leaving Vlasov to his own devices today. And in that case, 139, probably a pretty decent result for yeah, Vlasov. But yeah, Bora Hansgrohe tried to do what they've done before. They often attack in numbers, don't they? Sending two riders away. Kemner falling just short. He won a stage on Etna during the Giro, but it wasn't to be today. But... Uh, I think we were quite surprised that he crossed the line in fourth place and I think that just indicates how steep that final section is. I think 24%, 20, is that the, yeah. the gradient? Yeah, uh, the, 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 no, that's the highest grade, uh, gradient. It's 18% at the start, goes up to 20, reaches 24, eases a little bit. But <laughs> well, that sets us up nicely for the next part where we'll talk about the GC riders and how they fared. Well, Jumbo Visma and Ineos Grenadiers probably pretty satisfied with how things went today, even though Pogacar won again and gained a few more seconds and is in the lead by 35 seconds ahead of Vingegaard. Then Geraint Thomas is third at 110. Adam Yates, his Ineos Grenadiers teammate at 118. David Godou of Group Armour, excellent start to the tour for him. Roman Bardet, another Frenchman aiming for a high position. Nielsen Paulus, of course, slipped down a bit. Um, but it's starting to shape up that Ineos Grenadiers are going to have numbers in the second half of the tour and over the weekend with more climbing to come. Thomas, Yates, Pidcock and Danny Martinez all still in play, all in the top ten. I mean, it's gone perfectly and if Pogacar wasn't that half a level ahead of everybody else, uh, they would be thinking that the tour was there for the taking. Yeah, I was... I was Again, I'm really loving what Garen Thomas is doing. He's just, again, looking better and better as it goes on. And I keep saying this, but I'm, I'm liking how things are shaping up. 
But also, I was really liking the look of Adam Yates as well. Um, he was looking comfortable up there, as comfortable as he could look. I think in your they're the team, like we've been saying it the whole time, they're the team to shake things up. They're the team to start playing around and putting the pressure on the UAE team, you know, squad that is looking after Pogaccia. And, you know, maybe I saw some you know, kinks in the armour. I think potentially that is the only way we can, well, we, they can overcome um, the force of your you know, Pogacar. You had one leg back in the peloton for a minute there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's. I, I'm a bit puzzled when I hear about, you know, the because we, we said that in the past, uh, Pogacar won the tour twice. Every time we said, oh, he's got a weak team, you know, he's not going to make it. I, I didn't find uh, Rafael Maika or Brendan McNulty really weak uh, for the first couple of days. The, 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 the job George Bennett did for you know a, a lot you know a lot of the the early part of the climb today. Well, I mean you know is also something. Uh, I don't think and and once again I mean uh, Pogacar has shown, has shown in the past he could win the the the, the tour almost by himself and and now he's, he really has got that tough guy with him. Ineos obviously seem in the in the best position because of, they got four guys in the top ten doing all right. But let's not underestimate. Of course, we, we've never underestimated the Jumbo Visma. But I mean, they're, they're miss. You know, they're, they're woos on on the on on the cobble stage uh, might have given the wrong impression. Vingegaard is super mm, strong, he is. almost as strong. Maybe maybe just you know at the very close to, to Pogacar's level as I said before you know the heat could change things uh, uh, the, the speed that uh, the things have been going could change things Primoz Roglic is still around you know he's still there uh, the Bora Ansgro as they showed again to, to the, you know the today they're not the same strong team that they had in the in the Giro but in the same time they were two, two guys at the front uh, Vlasov on a bad day injured but still going strong I mean th there's still lots of things going on that you know won't make uh, the road to Paris for Pogacar an easy one It's interesting you say that about UAE Team Emirates and maybe some chinks in the armour because that's what Geraint Thomas said to television's Daniel Freib who's asking the questions here Third on general classification fifth on the stage how satisfied are you with that day? Yeah I wasn't too sure what to expect on that climb I wouldn't say it suits me the best but in 19 I went quite well up there and yeah today as well so uh, I think managed to ride it quite well not go too deep too early and because uh, the last 300 meters felt like a couple of minutes can be uh, happy with how I went today I guess yeah. Adam told us he had some issues with the gravel or some riders do with their pedaling style I mean did you take any special sort of precautions for that section in particular? Not really. I'm kind of always in the saddle anyway, so maybe that helps. I felt thought it felt better than in 19. In 19, it seemed a bit rougher, but all the boys on there were just saying I was talking rubbish. So, <laughs> yeah, it was okay for me. Going last year, there was so much talk about the Ineos Pride and before the tour, and it was pretty much wiped out after a couple of days. Now you're in a perfect position, aren't you, in the sense that you've got four guys in top 10 in general classification. How many options does that open up over the next few days? Well, yeah, it obviously gives us some cards to play, but at the same time, we need to use them in the right time as well. And you've got to have the legs to do it, but we seem to at the minute. So hopefully opportunity can arise and we can uh, try and use those numbers. But, uh, you know, it's one thing having them, it's another thing using it properly and actually making the most of it. But, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Word on Pogacar today. I mean, another stage win, but someone did manage to stick to his back wheel. Yeah, yeah. He, 
As you say, yeah, he won, but at least he was in two minutes up the road now. He's riding really well, but, um, you know, I think everyone senses a little vulnerability in this team. Um, they're obviously still riding really well, don't get me wrong, but, you know, there's a few creaks in there. Like you say, we've got numbers. Jumbo are obviously got numbers. There's a lot of other good bike riders and teams in the race as well, so it's not like we're focusing solely on Pogaccia, but um, we're in a good situation at the moment anyway, but, you know, it's two weeks to go and hell of a lot of bike racing, so... I was at the Ineos Grenadiers bus uh, listening to that interview with Geraint Thomas after the finish and uh, there was an extraordinary sight of Adam Yates in a pair of uh, swimming trunks or boxer shorts sitting in a, an inflatable ice bath for his, not, not warming down on the rollers, but sitting in an ice bath. Uh, I'm not sure he's terribly happy at the journalists who were taking photographs of him in the ice mm. bath. I, I wasn't one of them, I should hasten to add. Um, there was quite an amusing moment when the team Ineos uh, soigneurs or mechanics tipped over the ice bath to empty it of water and the water kind of went down the hill and round and uh, threatened to basically flood uh, a, a lady's driveway um, but fortunately it kind of went into a gully and into a, into a drain but the, <laughs> the woman didn't look terribly pleased that she was going to have her driveway filled with Adam Yates's bath water I think that at this stage you know that there are also those guys who, who can no longer hide their ambitions. I'm thinking what good David Godu announced from the start that he was would be the leader of the team. The Groupama FDJ uh, team said he was go going for the podium. So far, so good. But Romain Bardet, after you know really looking good in the Giro and and you know giving up uh, with stomach problems, gastroenteritis, he came here saying, well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm here for stage wins. We'll see how it goes. I mean, nobody will believe that anymore. I mean, he's, he's up there uh, with, with the best of them, uh, you know, showing us a form we haven't seen him in for many years. So these guys, obviously, will, will belong to the thing. Nilsson Paulus, we, we, well, we, we were all a little bit disappointed because we loved the guy, you know, that he didn't manage to uh, take the yellow jersey and now it'll be difficult to take it away from Pogacar. He's still there, you know, mm. in top 10. So, I mean, that, there's still lots of things happening. One thing... You mentioned you you, you used the, the 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 word cannibal. We know uh, talking about Pogacar, but something that struck me as well at his young age is how you know what a consummate professional he is. He was he, 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 he held the press conference for the press, just three questions, short ones. He took advantage of he took advantage of the last question that, that was being asked to show his shoes. You know, at the end of a day like this, when you know the effort he made, the the, the 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 incredible win he got once again, you know, he was asked that question and he did the corporate job as a real pro at the end of the stage, showing his 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 his, his shoes, and apparently the colors of the shoes are uh, for uh, uh, for you know foundation. Uh, against uh, you know for cancer, uh, they've been launching with uh, well, e e Pogacar, I think you know with the team, and so it it, it did not forget you know to to, mm. to the message came through, and it did that with ease, a little bit of you know naivete in a way. This guy is doing the job well at every single level. It's impressive for a guy. Will, will again be uh, you know will be, yeah will be going again for the young riders white jersey next year if he's in the tour well on the Ineos Grenadiers quartet I spoke to the team's uh, race coach Rod Ellingworth I wanted to know whether today presented many opportunities because it was you know rolling and flat and then the climb at the end or whether it was just a day to get through keep everybody in 
the best position possible and uh, live to fight another day. Well, how do you assess today? You've still got riders in play, but Pogacar already looks quite difficult to beat. Well, I, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say there was any surprises today, other than, if I'm, if I'm honest, I thought he was going to take out more time today. So I think that, to me, is a bit of a game-changer in that sense. I really did, you know, I thought he was going to go clear quite comfortably on his own, you know. So he, whether he's just playing the long game a bit or is he's... or wasn't quite as confident I don't know but I know pretty good for us guys I think from from what we was expecting so yeah tactically I'm not expecting you to give away too much but what can you do when you've got numbers and options but you've got to also pick your moments um, yeah, you know, you, 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 that's it, exactly. You're just looking for your opportunity. I think it's quite clear. Everybody knows. And again, you know, Pogacar's proved it today. He's, he is the... You know, no surprises. He's proved he's the, the, the rider he was last year. So you are playing that game a bit, as in looking for your opportunities. And let's just see what happens, isn't it, over the next couple of weeks now, really. I, I think, you know, it's great to see G, what, what he's doing. He's back at a good level. I think the other guy's pretty good. I think Adam's just sort of, he lost his rhythm on the cobbled, uh, cobbled on the gravel section there. And just and that's why he said he just suffered there. Felt really good on the tarmac. Danny, pretty good, was in the mix. So Tom, I thought, did a great ride, to be honest. You know, giving him a bit of a free roll to just see what he's capable of today. You know, there's a huge thing going off there in the background for him of learning and taking it all in like a big sponge you know the guys are doing really well I think you know as a team they're 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 racing pretty well as as a group so yeah is it tricky on a day like today where there's not really that much climbing before the final climb is it true that it doesn't present quite the same opportunities as maybe a multiple mountain stage yeah I think so yeah and uh, you know at the end of the day everybody's got their limits haven't they and we perhaps haven't seen Pogaccio on on the full limit but we have seen him in the past tours you know he's had his moments so he's got to wait for them days aren't you, you know and experience can play a big role at times so you know it's whatever happens this is a huge challenge it's a challenge for every team ahead of us but it's it's it you know everybody's human and there's an opportunity the lads could be there yeah science in sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France. Science in sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for sponsoring the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. A few things to wrap up from today's stage, Mitch and Francois. Magnus Court is still in the polka dot jersey. 11 points ahead of Pogacar on 10 points. I mean, the next uh, time there's a serious climb on the course, he's likely to lose that jersey, but another day in polka dots for him. And Wout van Aert, who scored some points at the intermediate sprint, is well clear in the green jersey competition at the moment. 203 points to Fabio Jakobsen's 140. We were talking in the car on the way. Um, Mitch, you were, you were talking about Wout van Aert and, and you know, his uh, versatility and brilliance on all of the different uh, terrain. And you were suggesting that you know, somebody like Magnus Court might be able to mount a challenge to Van Aert in the green jersey competition. Not this year, but in you know, a future year. But I made the point that the problem is that the green jersey rewards consistency, brilliant consistency on all terrains. And that is basically Wout van Aert's superpower, isn't it? I mean, he can score points anywhere. Yeah, we were laughing that, you know, as good as Magnus is, he's a lesser 
version of um, Wolvanana this moment. But in the future, um, I'm still trying to get to the bottom. And I was hunting around the buses this morning because I'm still trying to get to the bottom of what happened yesterday. I, I had an idea that comes that came to me, at, you know, at lunch time actually. World one out. He won bunch sprint on the Tour de France, right? He won in the mountains, right? He won an individual time trial. He wanted to win from a breakaway. A breakaway. It's the only explanation because, you know, I was I'm hunting around and actually one of the people I wanted to speak to because I thought a guy so strong, I got to race with Quinn Simmons um, in the last couple of years of my career and he did it to me. He rode me out of the wheel in Plouet Classic. I was in the break with him and he was riding me off the wheel. I'm like, how strong is this guy? You know, and that's just me. But then to see someone else do that to him, I had to ask the question. And I wanted him to say it to me. I didn't want to be the one to say, did you get ridden out of the wheel? Have a listen to this. Quinn Simmons, mate, you got to tell me about that breakaway yesterday because that looked like, you know, hell on earth. Everything exploded and the three best, strongest guys got out the front. But then eventually there was two left. And then there was one. What was it like being out there? I mean, I think you know how it goes when it's such a big fight. It's uh, two hours of full gas racing. And then, like you said, three of us almost just rode away. And yeah, hell on earth. I think that might be the best way to describe it. What was it like riding with Wote the last when it was just the two of you left? It looked like it was just getting grimy. It was getting hard. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing was hard. You know, we slowed down for maybe 15 minutes in there when we were just regrouping. But... Other than that, it was a flat-out stage, and yeah, for me, I was just begging in my head for him to attack because I didn't want to be dropped from the wheel. I'd rather go out with a little dignity and at least have him drop me with an attack, but unfortunately, I just got rode straight out. That's what it looked like. I'm glad that you said it because it did look like that, but I can tell you, I would have been ridden out of that wheel long ago, so you already were pretty impressive to be at that point. He's on another level at the moment, isn't he? What do you think that was all about, the yellow jersey going up the road yesterday? To be honest, I have no idea. We all, we knew the break had a good chance and that's why we were trying to go and to see him coming, maybe in a group of 10 or something, I could understand, but when it was just three of us going and he was the one the whole time when we were questioning it, like, should we just stop? He was always like, oh no, push it, push it. We have a chance, we have a chance. I was just like, okay, whatever I go all in, we're here, why not? Well, honesty from Quinn Simmons there, ridden off the wheel by Walt Van Aert I mean no shame in that really the way that Van Aert's going uh, but the big question for the fashion police Mitch is what do the fashion police make of the all yellow skin suit the, because Van Aert wore it Pogacar's worn it today um, there's a green version as well for the points competition leader I, I'd shudder to think if there's a polka dot version i remember pierre Hollande actually had polka dot shorts one year but it was a it was a sight for sore eyes that no the opposite of a sight for sore eyes it was a a, a bit of a monstrosity but i'm not sure i think i st- still as a traditionalist prefer the proper trade team shorts with the yellow jersey what do you think no no i'm i'm all i'm all on board once once <laughs> chippo made that transition he got the yellow nicks out and he did the full yellow and then i've always been the fan of if I ever get the polka dot jersey, full polka dot, everything. You know, you know why I'm not for the full polka dot, but they, they really look like you know, like underwear. You know, the, 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 your, your granddad's <laughs> panties. You know. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I think I think these on the racetrack here. I didn't know Peugeot were making bikes as well. Well, they do actually. <laughs> I think what's happened here is that 
actually the the shorts you know the time trial the speed suits you know what what are they going to do they can't make Centini can't make um you know trade team nicks in it so it's just got to be the full yellow um but that that is an indication to the change of times and a fashion police call out is that no stages are being done without marginal gains anymore right down to the clothing Everyone's wearing speed suits, regardless if it does something or not. It's the the idea in your head that it's faster, you know. And so we see these guys every single stage; they're wearing the fastest possible, you know, suit they can. Uh, uh, how about mustaches and beards? You know, you were, we're talking to Simon Geschke, <laughs> yeah. and uh, well, we don't know who you, who has a mustache on the peloton anymore. But well, Magnus, <laughs> oh Magnus, Magnus yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, Queen Queen Simmons, Queen oh Simmons yeah, Queen. Beard, yeah. yeah. I mean, has anyone ever done a wind tunnel test on facial hair and whether it has any impact on uh, a rider's aerodynamics and and therefore power? Not that I know of, but you know, it's I, I do know this though, skin is not faster than the material like the the speed suits and a head like a bald head or just a hair is not faster than a helmet um you know because there's that idea that oh, if we didn't have these helmets i'd be so fast time trialing you know just with a headband on that's my dream anyway but actually those time trial helmets and the aero suits are actually faster than your you know mm. your skin so going naked with no helmet Wouldn't so, be faster. So, what you're saying that uh, naked naked riders are not won't be unfortunately the next no, trend. it yeah. won't be. It's not faster. <laughs> wow, naked Tour de France. I, I, it, it didn't take long, but we got there. <laughs> we got there eventually. Um, just lastly, there was the extraordinary sight of an anti-marche rider. It was Louis Menkes running across the line at the finish. Uh, Mitch, what happened there? Because you went and stood outside the anti-marche bus, didn't you, hoping to find out what had been happening there? Yeah, I wasn't able to talk to talk to Louis. Um, he was just purely the answer I got back was he's just too disappointed to come out and talk about it. I was like, well, what's going on? This was just speaking to the bus driver, and he said that his his gearing went into crash mode. Anyone who's familiar with Shimano, they have this mode where if the the derailleur receives a big jolt or it does actually crash and falls down, the gearing it drops down into the 11 to protect the derailleur. And the only way to get it out of that crash mode is to stop and and re reset the function box, or actually move the derailleur up by hand to the the easiest gear, which would have been probably a 28 cog or 30 maybe, and then it'll reset. But at that point of the race, one he couldn't do that. The fastest thing to do is, I guess, run to the line. Reminded me of Chris Froome a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, on uh, Mont Ventoux, running up the hill. Uh, extraordinary, extraordinary finish to the stage well we we ought to wrap up because we've got to go and order our Montbelliard sausage for dinner haven't mm. we um, we've got a restaurant booking F Francois France in July is still you know they, they don't like people eating late do they in the evening it's no, it still depends. a cultural it, thing they have dinner early it, no, it depends where in France it's always the same you know when I, when I hear people talking about French cuisine It's a it's a little bit irrelevant. I mean, when you have saucisses de Montbéliard, I mean, what you eat here and what you eat in Nice and what you eat in uh, the southwest, or what you eat in Brittany, you, you you you've got you know you've got many many countries inside France, and it's true that the eastern part around Alsace and Lorraine, a little bit like Switzerland, uh, yes, they're, they're only. Uh, you know, they have early dinners like well, well, like Danes actually. Remember in Denmark, it was the same thing. So yeah, the the the, the, 
the closer to Spain, the the the, the later mm. the meals. I mean, I, I suppose that's. But here, yeah, we're in, we're in the eastern part of France, and uh, and there's also that old legend, you know, kind of a cult legend in France that the kitchen stops at nine. You know, the the, the reason might be that you know that the the, the, the the chef is being paid paid extra hours after nine, wow. and maybe that's the reason why the landlord doesn't want don't want to pay them for that. But yeah, so we have to speed up a little bit because it's half past eight. Oh well, we better get moving. <laughs> uh, this is actually my final night with you, Mitch and Francois, because. Uh, Well, anyone who follows me on Instagram will know that uh, three weeks ago my dad died and so I'm going home for his funeral and leaving the cycling podcast in the very capable hands of you, Mitch, and you, Francois, it will be the first Tour de France episode without one of the founders of the cycling podcast, myself, Richard Moore, or Daniel Freiber tomorrow and that in itself is a significant moment but I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to your coverage tomorrow and Ooh. I'm very very uh, thankful and appreciative that you're you're taking the baton on into Switzerland and uh, I'll, I'll be listening uh, very keenly uh, but I wanted to uh, finish this episode with uh, a piece of music Mitch that you will know very well mm. uh, it's the theme music to the Channel 4 Tour de France coverage from the 1980s and uh, well the reason that I'm here is because of my dad I wouldn't have got interested in cycling without him He was interested in cycling as a boy. Uh, he told me stories about how at school he'd pass around uh, um, copies of Mirage Sprint in the 1950s that they would have bought, month, got shipped over, you know, months out of date, reading about the Tour de France in October or November, and it would be their little window into the world of uh, Jacques Anquetil or Charlie Gaulle uh, or Louis Bobé. And uh, he passed on his interest in cycling and the Tour de France to me. And in the mid-1980s, uh, I've told this story before on the podcast, but um, he would not get, in get home from work in time to watch the Tour de France highlights. So I would record them on our video recorder. Kids, um, th mm. that's before you could pause and rewind and record television live. And uh, we'd sit and watch the Tour de France highlights together every night during July and um, this is the theme music composed by Pete Shelley of Buzzcocks fame Mitch it means a lot to you as well because it's the theme music for your podcast Life in the Peloton and um, whenever I hear it it just transports me back to uh, the living room at my parents house um, my, you know, my family home in the 1980s and 90s me sitting watching the Tour de France with my dad and his eclectic list of favourite riders uh, Ron and Pensec and Charlie Motte and Thierry Marie all French riders um, strangely I never uh, and a few others Rudy Darnans Ludo Peters he liked as well never really knew what the unifying thread was there just kind of left field choices but this music just reminds me of watching the tour with my dad and so this is for him The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.